0: Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I'm Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And today we are so thrilled, we are so, so, so excited to be joined by a very special guest, Liz Winstead. Hi, Liz. Hi, guys. Hey. We are so happy to have you here. This is such an exciting time. (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. I've already talked about the fact that I'm
1: uh, fangirling a little bit. I'm a little bit nervous. And our listeners know when I fangirl, I get really stuttery. So go ahead and put that at the beginning of the episode because like I said, I'm a fan. I've seen your shows. I've seen your stand-up. So I'm having a moment. (laughs) And now I'm back. But we're so glad you're with us. And thank you for coming
2: on. Thank you for having me. I'm super stoked. I love your pod. And I just any chance to honestly connect with other women, I'm just like, please, I'm hungering for it. I'm like a thirst trap just for like <laughs> female people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We are too. So you're in the right place. Yes. So, Liz, could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. So, I am a comedian and a writer and a producer. Most folks know me from being the creator and head writer of The Daily Show. And we're in, it's the 25th anniversary this year of The Daily Show, which is
1: wow. wild to
2: me. Uh, we have a baby and now it's 25. And then I went on to launch Air America Radio and I had this wild ass radio show with Rachel Maddow and Chuck D from Public Enemy for a couple of years. And then I've done a series of TV shows and I wrote a book. And all of that sort of led me to turning 50 and realizing that I wanted to do my passion project, which was taking humor and taking, dragging hypocrites for filth using humor and trying to make a difference and centering reproductive health rights and justice. Because sadly, y'all, for those of you that care about these issues, we just, even within people who are claim to be pro-choice or are forward thinking on politics, they often try to silo abortion and act like it's a woman's issue, act like it's too controversial, we can't talk about it, or are men going to care, you know, and to have to thrust those things or hear those things from people who are supposedly on our side, it's like our humanity's at stake and everyone should care. And so I really wanted to try to recenter the conversation around the humanity of access to reproductive care to normalize reproductive care to put it into back into the place of like an option that somebody might have when they are in their reproductive lifetime you know reframing it as a moral choice so that's what i'm doing now and i'm still out on the road doing stand up i'm still writing but i run a, a reproductive rights nonprofit that i started with a whole bunch of comedians and activists and producers called Abortion Access Front.
1: And yeah, like I said, I'm a huge fan. We actually had Chanel Ali come onto the show as well. This was pre-COVID. Remember that, Annie, when we were actually in the studio? In the
0: studio, yeah. when y'all
1: were in Atlanta performing at the Earl, I ran over because I was at that show. It's like, Chanel, you're amazing. Can you come on our show? And she was so kind and so amazing. And she came and did our show again. Pre-COVID, it feels like ten thousand years ago, and I know it's <laughs> not, but it feels like it in my head.
2: Chanel Ali is so funny. She's one of the writers at Abortion Access Front and one of our performers. And um, in fact, she was just—I just saw her. I don't know if you've been watching Pause with Sam J. Rather on HBO, and she was just on that, and that was really exciting. The show—it's uh, a plug for that show. I think it's great.
1: Right, and wasn't Joel on that as well? Because I remember same the episode. first time. Yes. Yes, all y'all are so famous. I just I just can't handle it. I'm like, how do I meet I, and I will say I, my whole beginning of starting the podcast or being on the podcast is like I'm trying to make all new friends. So, I feel like it's working. Is it working? I
2: think it is. I feel like you're doing uh, great. You know, just don't do it in the way. I don't know if you guys read there was a New York Times article recently that talked about how to purge the people out of your life during COVID. It wasn't helpful, like do a reassessment of people who bring value and like who was really helpful. What did you learn? It was like get rid of losers. And like it literally said, get rid of fat people. <gasps> it was so you this it was so gross and so cruel. What? It felt like Scientology or something, where it's like, oh you my know what? Gosh. People can't like move up the ladder on their own. They're weak. Get rid of them. <gasps> the article was such a mess. Twitter dragged it, which was great. But it just felt like I understand, like, I think we've all kind of like been through this year of COVID and realized like, what am I now? What what am I, what am I gonna be? How am I gonna be? I'm somebody who is I really realized I'm an introvert extrovert. And that Mm -hmm. really came to be now that I'm trying to tap my toe back out into the world. You know, it's like I walk my dog outside and people are like, Oh, that's a cute dog. I'm like, I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't sign up to have a conversation with you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I feel the same way. When I come outside (laughs) and I see people and now... well. I don't know if you know about Atlanta and Georgia. And obviously, we have a very controversial government in place. I have no idea how else to say this. (laughs) And then the fact that the mask mandates have not been really a big thing here in Georgia. So for the most part, Annie and I have just been secluded. Like we have stayed in except for maybe going out once every seven to 10 days to get the groceries and leave again. But as I'm going back into the world and people have been out in the world, I'm like... Why? What is wrong with you? (laughs) This is why I don't trust you today. I don't trust that you're okay.
2: (laughs) So true. I know. You guys have been hit hard in Georgia just with the anti-maskers. I also love, too, it's the same anti-maskers that are screaming my body, my choice, and then they're outside of a clinic where people can access abortion, screaming you can't have a choice. I'm like, do you understand that you can't catch pregnancy from six feet away? (laughs) Like, Right. Right. (laughs) Your your lack of of biology information makes me just, I can't. I saw a woman, this was unbelievable, holding a sign. She was very, very carony, very adamant. She was holding a sign that said, I will not mask my unborn child. And I was like, um, lady, you're wearing pants
1: they're in a womb yeah yeah they're literally <laughs> encased by your body that's So right. they're like a pod yeah just so you know that's right wow i have a feeling that might be from georgia because uh, the <laughs> anti-abortion protesters are out in mass we just had one in atlanta i saw people trying to figure out how best to combat this it's right. i don't know how else to say it, it yeah is.
2: it's right and you know during uh, the pandemic especially like Removing access to any kind of care is terrible. You know, we just saw so much scariness. And to think about somebody who's having to make the decision, you know, to terminate a pregnancy during the pandemic and have to take all those precautions and then have to go to a clinic where there's unmasked people just screaming judgment at you on top right. of everything else. It was it was really heartbreaking to hear from clinics that like we were helping throughout the pandemic. We started a big mutual aid program because... Clinics were not allowed to apply for PPE. You know, they couldn't get any grants. They couldn't get any stuff because right-wing governments, a lot of times, wouldn't allow them to get any of the stuff they needed. So we were getting the masks and getting them stuff and and just trying to help any way we could because, you know, it was a mess. It's just a mess. Any way they can like hold us down, they'll certainly try and taking advantage of a pandemic to do so. Just seemed like right. next level of cruelty. So, so gross.
1: But I kind of wanted to go back because you do talk about the fact that you decided as you were a comedian, a writer, that this is how you were going to go down in fighting for justice. Let's start at the beginning. How did you even decide to be a part of this comedic world, especially going big into co writing, co creating one of now one of the bigger shows, especially when it comes to uh, comedic conversations in such ugly political climate. I don't even... <laughs> it's got a little better, but not too much better. Let's just be real honest. But how did you even get started?
2: You know, I, I got started on a dare when I was <laughs> literally in college. Also, I'm the youngest of five kids from a really loud Catholic family. And so yeah. A, if I had any thoughts or positions that diverted from what I was told, those weren't silenced. Also, ain't nobody got time for the youngest of five kids to say anything. And so <laughs> somebody dared me to do stand-up in college. And I was like, I am kind of a class cynic. And also, I think that if I step on stage, that will give me five minutes of uninterrupted time <laughs> where I can yeah. have something yeah. to say. And that. so I did. But the hilarious part is, like, I initially, when I was a kid, I've always just wanted to be able to say some things and not necessarily even like profound things, just complete a sentence where I wasn't mansplained or interrupted. And so (laughs) when you look towards like, where can that happen for me? When you're brought up Catholic, priest was the first thing I was like, oh, that priest, he's up there every Sunday and everybody thinks what he has to say is really interesting. And quite frankly, I'm bored half the time, but people (laughs) love him. So it doesn't seem that hard to public speak. And so I just really did it on a dare because I just really wanted to have something to say. And then, you know, so I would write jokes that I didn't start out political, really. I kind of just started out talking about my life and stuff like that. But then it was interesting. I was on stage and doing some same old material, observational jokes, you know, things like, I really think, you know, male Great Danes should have to wear underwear in public. You know, (laughs) just silly things. Ever notice when bald guys play Monopoly, they always pick the hat. I mean, really, like, not that great. And also just, like, (laughs) very observational. But then like, but then we get a laugh, you know, I I could get solid laughs. And then all of a sudden I noticed that the audience wasn't responding to the same material that had worked a bunch. So I started recording myself and I listened back and I realized that I had done a word switch in my jokes where instead of saying, ever notice, I started saying, I think and when i started saying i think the audience was rejecting what i was saying and mm. it was it was literally fascinating to me because then i was like if i can't even make opinion jokes that have zero weight and just say the word i think i might as well say some things i think <laughs> like if it, if the results going to be different i might as well start talking about what i think so i started talking about you know issues of like body image and how people were presented in, in media and in magazines and, and sort of across the board, feminist issues. And then I really decided that it was when the first Gulf War happened and it's a story. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I always had politics, by just didn't bring it to stage. So when I moved to New York, Somebody set me up on a blind date. Remember those blind dates? It was a thing where (laughs) your friend would go, I know a guy. And always, it was like, never a good guy. It it was never great. (laughs) So, but I'm from Minnesota. So I was like, okay, I'll say yeah," because you're trying to do a nice thing and I'll do it. So the guy calls me and I was like, I really wanted to see La Dolce Vita. The great Italian film. They were showing it on a single, old single screen thing and I'd never seen it. So I say to the guy, I really want to see La Dolce Vita. They're showing it at the film forum. And he was like, pause. And then he goes, isn't that in black and white? And I'm like, kill me now. I've committed to go on a date with this guy. But I'm going to go through (laughs) with it because I'm from Minnesota. So I meet him outside the theater. And the dude is wearing a Yankee hat and one of those satin Yankee jackets. And I have a theory that if a guy is wearing more than one piece of sports memorabilia at the same time, he won't go down on you. Just a theory, (laughs) but I think I'm right. So immediately then I'm just repulsed. And so we go into the movie and then he's falling asleep through this like incredible movie. And I'm like, how is this happening? How is this happening? And I get more and more angry and so I'm more and more angry and he's sleeping and I have a bucket of popcorn and a greasy hand and I accidentally on purpose wake him up with my greasy hand and I leave a stain on his jacket. And <laughs> it felt good for a second and then I felt terrible. So I instantly go, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Can I take you for your drink? I'll pay for your jacket. And he goes, okay, I know a sports bar. Of course he does down the street. This story is leading somewhere. <laughs> So we go to the sports bar, and he's like, orders his drink. We look up at the TV, and there's no sports on TV. It is the first night of the war. And it's CNN, and it's like graphics and a theme song and all these super hot reporters on top of buildings with that green light. And I thought to myself, with no intention whatsoever, just observation, are they reporting on a war or trying to sell me a war? Mm-hmm. And two minutes mm-hmm. later, my date goes, this is so awesome. And I was like, holy moly, this is terrifying me because this is what they're trying to do. And if there was ever such thing as like an epiphany or a wake-up call, for me, it mm-hmm. was that moment. And from that moment on, I just started writing jokes to, you know, to ask folks to... Don't believe the media. You know, look at your government. Look what they're trying to sell us. They think we're stupid, and it really took off from that point. So I guess I have to thank the uh, satin-jacketed monster for uh, <laughs> propelling me into the world of this. And so my act totally changed. I had to reinvent myself. My audience, like it was like, I don't want to hear politics from you, and then I like that. And so. It was like this whole different reinvention. But then eventually people knew me as the person who responded to the world and was doing political jokes and social humor. And then that sort of led to me working on the Jon Stewart talk show. And then when that show got canceled, my bosses went over to Comedy Central and they wanted to create a show that was on every day. So my brilliance said, why don't we call it The Daily Show? And Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) the rest is history. I love that. That is amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I wonder what that guy's up to now. Right. I wonder if he knows this story.
2: My guess is that I hopefully he found some girl who really, really enjoys sports.
1: Getting him his little six pack while he sits on Sundays watching his sports. Oh,
0: geez.
2: And I often wonder like, why my friend set me up with him. She knew.
1: That's a good question. She knew this was going to begin <laughs> your career, yes. your lifelong dedication. Yeah,
2: yeah. I remember her saying, well, I think I think he's really funny. And it's like, that is so subjective. You know, there's many people people think are very funny that I do not think are funny. And that is really humor, right? You know, it's interesting because right. when I hear so much about cancel culture, and by the way, have you ever noticed that every guy who complains about cancel culture is doing it in front of a microphone? and has right. a massive audience. <laughs> right, right. <Yep. laughs> I just don't believe that there's cancel culture. I believe that there is a marketplace of ideas. And if your ideas are no longer valued by the marketplace, they're going to be like, nah, I don't think so. You know, I run an abortion right. rights organization and I'm a comedian. Like I'm set up to be canceled. And I <laughs> right. don't expect everyone to like me. And to right. it's such privilege to have that, right? To have this expectation that you are to be interpreted exactly how you want to be and that you should be adored by everyone it's like are you mad that everyone doesn't like your jokes like do you think you deserve that like i don't know what world that is women have never experienced a world where everyone likes you or everyone like literally people were mad that i actually had an opinion on stage or that i actually thought that i was entitled to be on stage and right right Right? so the thought of that stuff it drives me wild. It just drives me wild. Right. It's like, why are you complaining? You have a big audience. Right. They're Neanderthals that you don't want to hang out with. I secretly think that's why you're mad. Because, like, some people just are like, nah, I don't think so. And then people listen to those people. Too bad. Right. <laughs>
1: I know there was two different comedians. Cat Williams, as well as Seth Rogen, kind of finally addressed it. It was like, hey, this is not cancel culture. It's just you are out of date or you are uh, out of place. So yeah. therefore, just accept it and move on and change or don't come back, which is kind of all of comedy, which is in general, most of comedy is based on whatever is current events. So why, if that changes, why wouldn't what is accepted and what is said change? Why are you so hell-bent in being right all the time, which we know, uh, you know, the biggest podcaster, he has been complaining quite loudly a lot about being canceled and making millions and millions of dollars and having the highest rating. You're like, that's not cancel culture. That's not, I don't think you're using that word correctly, as well as the fact <laughs> we have things like uh Kevin Spacey, who's been gone for three or four years, but coming back, and you're like, that, That is the level of cancel culture we have. Uh, And the people who are most likely impacted are women and uh, marginalized communities in general because you have things like Karens who come in saying, I'm angry because you didn't give me this. And that would be a different level of like, wow, really? Y'all want to talk about who is actually being penalized in this conversation? But yeah, as you're talking about it, as you're talking about the fact that you have responded, like your comedy is a response to the world, why do you think comedy is so important in influencing the bigger conversation?
2: I think that comedians can be the most reliable narrators because if you're true, everybody who either has power and bumbles it or uses it for evil should be your target. Even if you like that person, you know, it's like I remember... I would get like hate tweets from when I would tweet about like Obama wanting to use drones or hiring like people who from the financial industry who I thought were crooks. You know, like I, I just looked for hypocrisy where I could pick it out and then make jokes around it. Right. And so if people are mad at you for different reasons on both sides, um, I think you're kind of doing your good job. So I think that's part of it. I also think too, that being able to live comedy, especially, you know, if you're, you know, hopefully you're always punching up. Hopefully you're really being somebody who is taking on, you know, the powerful. It gives folks an opportunity to gather and feel like you're not alone. You know, when you look at the media, the landscape, and you look at where information comes in, oftentimes it's really hard to find spaces where there's like strong, funny, feminist voices out there, like speaking this other kind of truth which is why I'm super excited that we are launching a YouTube show in the fall called Feminist Buzzkills Live, where it's going to be this really fun show that kind of talks about everything that's going on around misogyny and patriarchy and and abortion access and reproductive rights access. And then having guests that come on and experts and comics and musicians, it's going to be kind of like The View if it didn't have Megan McCain. And it was <laughs> a little funnier.
1: That'll be a and delight. More
2: diverse. And so, <laughs> you know, but things like that, you just don't see, you know, the landscape just like talk radio in and of itself. Like when they asked me to launch Air America Radio, I didn't know much about radio, but I really love, like, I love this. I love podcasting mediums. I love radio mediums. It just feels so connective, right? But when I found out that 94% of all talk radio was conservative leaning or extreme conservative leaning, and 6% was liberal or just neutral, it was so astonishing to me. But then it also explained a whole ton about like, you know, think back in, this was in 2003, you know, think about, it's like when, why you need infrastructure, right? There wasn't broadband, there wasn't a whole lot of ways for people to get information and they had AM radio. And a lot of that was just like the bombastic Rush Limbaugh was the thing that carried through on, whatever, you know, terrestrial radio you could you could get. And so when we launched and we got into some AM stations in some of these areas, people would call us crying saying, this is the first time I've ever heard this information. I can't believe it. I'm I feel free like, you know, I mean, you just forget about like rural queer people and all this stuff who are just sort of living with their own selves with no information. So, and I think that using humor it just, funny brings you together in a way that other things can't. And also you can't fake joy and laughter, right? So if somebody makes you laugh, if you even ideologically disagree with them, you, for even if it was just that second, liked that person because they brought you joy. And so it brings a humanity back into the conversation that i think is not present in so much of the way we live our lives now right it's very easy to demonize polarize other and and really just it's I, I don't know when it came that having a different point of view made you an evil person who does not deserve respect and humanity like that's a just terrifying place that i often see in this landscape that we're living in. So, yeah. I'm a long-winded yeah, person. Uh, I'm sorry. I just like, you ask a question and then I no,
1: <laughs> No, this is what we love. We want yes. the full explanation. Give, it all. <laughs> Give us all of it.
0: Yes, and that really resonates with me because I did... I grew up in a small town. Both Samantha and I did grew up in small conservative towns and you did as well, correct? Me?
2: Minneapolis, so no. <laughs> no, she did not. I grew up with really conservative parents who didn't know what Mm -hmm. to do that I was exposed to the liberal garbage. My dad used to call it the People's Republic of Minnesota. Like he couldn't take it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely nicer than what my parents said. So,
2: (laughs) (laughs) My dad said some other stuff too that wasn't great because my dad was from Philadelphia, Mississippi, which if you've never heard Uh. of Philadelphia, Mississippi, it's where the Mississippi burning murders happened. So that's the town that my dad grew up in. And then Mm -hmm. my mom Mm -hmm. was from the Twin Cities and they met in Washington, D.C. during World War II. And so she dragged him to this socialist hellscape. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had to handle
0: it. <laughs> yeah, but the connecting with people over humor, and I guess when The Daily Show was getting started and really taking off, that was right around like that Gulf War thing, CNN and that 24-hour cable news was taking off. And for me personally, I loved The Daily Show because the news was so hard for me to consume often. But if I could get it through a comedic form, even if sometimes it was still really painful or like scary, it was just so much easier for me to watch it. And I am someone who thinks it is important to stay informed. So I'm so happy that that was an option. And it did make me feel less alone because I did grow up in a really conservative space. And sometimes I would think, is there literally anyone else who agrees like as having these thoughts or these feelings? Is it just me that thinks that this is messed up? And it was so comforting to have that and see... You're not alone and other people are laughing at that and you're laughing at that and you are connecting over it. And so through your time as being at the forefront of political satire, have you seen, has it changed? Have you seen it change?
2: I've seen it change in the sense of what used to be clear satire is now it's very hard to satirize when you have movements that believe Hillary Clinton was running a pedophile ring in the basement of a pizza parlor, for example, and you have literally, (laughs) right. right? And so how do you satirize that? Like, I literally wrote a joke about the Georgia voting legislation where I was like, you know, part of the Georgia voting laws is that you can't just vote. You have to, you have to walk through checkpoint Charlie Daniels. And people were like, is that true? And I was like, (laughs) no, it's not, but I know, like, I know that it seems like it could be right. So Right. Part of it has been satirizing this, is which has been really hard. The other part that's been really interesting is watching people who, like late night shows would always do really banal kind of political jokes if they would do any at all. And when Trump happened, a lot of armchair folks jumped in and became Trumpian and did Trump Material and called it political satire, right? I used to be able to do like material around like when Obama was creating Obamacare. Like there was a myriad of things around that. And I could tell the story of the evolution of Obamacare and I could talk about the haters who were like useless and all the death panel stuff. And then I could talk about the rollout of Obamacare and just laugh about all of the crazy things that happened and really do like 10 minutes on explaining something that was an issue that you could hit all the parts of it. And it's really hard now because you have people kind of doing surfacing material that's, you know, about, is Trump wearing a diaper? I don't care. He's destroying (laughs) democracy. You know what I mean? Right. And so having fancy comedians doing hacky political material has been a little bit hard when you're trying to do something and i don't want to say smarter but at least that makes a point and gets people to think because you're pointing out the hypocrisy and asking questions so mm-hmm. that's been a big change around you know the landscape in general the good news is because of women and queer folks coming forward and because of twitter and because of social media where agency was given to folks who never had it before and having opinions real issues are being able to talk about i don't have to prove that sexual harassment and sexual assault is happening anymore you know like all like i can like now just go in without explanation because for years that was it oh you're exaggerating oh that's not really true you know and so to have a different kind of baseline at least has been also kind of helpful in the landscape of like, what's been good and what's been bad about it. Um, Having people believe us for the first time ever is huge. And I really feel like part of incorporating that into my comedy, it's just massively important to honor those who never got a shake and who got errate. You know, talk about cancel. Who got canceled? People who came Mm -hmm. forward when they were harassed and destroyed by simply asking to not be harmed at work or on a date, right? So when I hear about this crying of cancel culture, I'm just like, again, would you please stop? Because you have been a bully forever and it's been rewarded. And those who are victims of your bulliness are the ones who actually, we don't know where they are. You know, anytime there's an actor you liked from the 70s or 80s or 90s, you're like, what happened to them? I love them probably they called out some garbage human and were never heard Mm -hmm. from again.
0: Right. Yep. Which is very upsetting because then you think of all the stuff we've lost. Yes. All of this comedy we don't have. Right. And
2: it it does become, like I have to check in with myself a lot to not almost look at the larger picture of that because Mm -hmm. what gets me up every day is the fact that I am able to do that. And I'm 60. I turned 60 in August. And all of these avenues have allowed me to be as relevant as I choose. And I feel like that's really cool. And to be able to have abortion access front and work in an environment where I could be the parents of everyone, the grandparents of some, or as I say to them, I could have terminated all of you. So, you know, I'd like to keep (laughs) them on their toes. But so, you know, it's like to be able to elevate those voices and to sort of bring my age and wisdom. In sort of like this auntie role, um, it's been really cool, and it's really nice to be able to. The show that we're doing, Feminist Buzzkills Live, in the fall is going to be really fun because it's it's I'm sixty. Um, there's an African American woman who is in her early forties, and then a South Asian woman who's in her early thirties, and so genera- And then we'll have guests on who are like in their twenties, right? So, generationally and culturally, coming to this issue from really different experiences and having two out of those three experiences not be the experience that is mine, which everybody sort of knows right. mine. Right. And so to be able to take a back seat and, and have these voices uplifted, I feel really excited about because I, and we're seeing so much of that now, which is really great. You know, when people are like, what are your favorite comics? And I just think of like all these great people and that it's not just, a litany of white male comedians anymore that right. you list off, right? You can just go down the line of Joy L. Johnson, Jenny Yang, Helen Hong, right. Jeannie Asheray, Sam Jay. You know, like you can just go on and on and on and you're like, oh my God, there's so many. It's so cool.
1: I will say I connected with Helen a little too much when she was on stage. I was like, stop it. Stop it. Uh, <laughs> also, she's
2: doing an hour special. Um, she's taping oh, really? an hour special soon, yes, through the oh. Tribeca Film Festival, which I'm really, really, really excited okay. about. I'm such a big fan. She's been also out, out on the road with us a whole bunch. She yes. and Jenny I love. Are-
1: That's how I got introduced to her, was because I, when I came to the show, and I was like, oh my God. And then I saw our new girl, I was like, Helen, I I know who that is. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an amazing conversation because yeah, like I said, I was introduced to your show, your comedy show, specifically through what you're doing with Abortion Access Front, and it's amazing. And you have you have such a way of obviously mentoring uh, the new and up and coming because every time I've I've only gone to the t- show twice, but you've always brought on newer people, younger kids. I say kids, they're not kids. They're about 20 years younger than me, so I say kids. (laughs) Annie and I hit that gap. She's early 30s, I'm early 40s, so we hit those gaps too. But younger generations that are doing comedy better, because I'm not going to lie, for the longest time, I couldn't watch stand-up. Watching comedy shows always made me cringe because I was afraid of what they were going to say next. And then coming to this, I guess, generation, this time frame when you actually get to see good comedy that's not at the expense of women or marginalized communities. You're like, what? What is this new thing? And I love seeing that. But also, I love that you do it with a purpose. You have a whole reason. Abortion Access Front is not about just the comedy, but again, helping. Like You are going to these individual clinics and helping, assisting, whether it's Uh, I think Chanel went to actually put up chairs and paint at one point. She was like, I got to go do this thing because I got to go. And I was like, wow, you're actually going in and being a part of that family and restoring some kind of just being told thank you for what you're doing instead of being screamed at for the first time in a very long time, probably. How did you even come to this point? How did this organization begin? How did you come to this point?
2: So what happened was, I was finishing up my book and I had come back to Minnesota because, uh, the book is a series of essays about my sort of life, how I found my voice, how that voice landed on stage, and then how that voice evolved from comedy, just straight up comedy into having this purpose and then where it led. Right. So I was finishing up my book and I didn't know what I was going to do next. I didn't, you know, I was like, Oh, I need to create another show. Like what do I want to do? And it was right when all of those abortion laws were happening right around 2011. And you'll remember Wendy Davis is kind of the touchstone for everybody standing there in Texas and filibustering. And what people didn't realize was Texas was one of 27 states that had that exact bill dumped on them. But the other 26 states didn't have a Wendy Davis, so people didn't know. And so I was like watching Texas and I was tweeting about it and then other clinics were kind of tweeting at me saying, our legislature just did this too. And I, and people were activists and people were from around the country were like, this is going on all over. So then I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I was going to go back to Brooklyn. So I had my two dogs and I rented a van and I did comedy fundraisers to get back to Brooklyn for these clinics. And I went to go visit the clinics. And what happened was, every clinic I would go visit, the staff was literally shocked and said, you know, in the saddest way, thank you for coming. People don't come here to visit us. And I thought, how are we to keep access to care if? You feel so defeated and marginalized and othered. You're not going to keep stats. So when I got back to New York, I, I threw a giant dinner for comedians, writers, everybody I knew that worked in my field, that I knew was feminist, that I knew cared about issues. And I was like, we all are here because we had access to birth control and some of us had access to abortion. We need to get out there and... Show people love. And the other thing that I had found out from the clinics was if you provide abortion, especially in areas that are hostile towards it, you can't get someone to mow your lawn, paint your hallways, fix your roof, do anything because people will boycott those companies. So we talked and we decided we were going to create a nonprofit that made videos like Funny or Die videos that would expose the issues. And then we were going to kind of do this USO cross with Habitats for Humanity and travel around the country, do comedy shows that were comedy variety shows. So you'll have some comedy, you'll have a conversation with the activists in the community and the clinic, and then you'll have maybe a musician also. So that our audiences could learn what's at stake, how they could help and sign up with the local folks on the ground And then carry on the work. You know, We have people tabling so you could watch the show, hear from the people, go sign up right then at the table. And then we go to the clinics and we will find out what they need. So we will do the gardening. We will mow their lawn. We'll do that. And when we know what they need, we'll bring that up in the show. So it'll be like, we'll do a little work ahead of time, right? And so then what's cool, I'll never forget, I was in Oklahoma City and we were just talking about what they needed in Oklahoma City. And this guy raises his hand and he's like, you're telling me that activism is I sign up and say, I'll be your landscaping company. You pay me and I'm an activist. And I was like, yes, because the act of parking (laughs) your van in front of that clinic, saying you support these people is an act of defiance and an act of support. And so people really when they start to hear that and when we can go to every city and and know in advance what they're having a hard time getting services for and put it out to the audience, we're always getting people to sign up and say, I'm happy to be that person. But people don't know. And part of, I think, what's so important when you're looking at where you want to be helpful or how you want to do your activism is making sure you're not replicating work. You know, is there organizations already doing this and being better at it? And usually there are and and they're usually... BIPOC led organizations that like white people don't know about, so they're going to start a thing. So, you know, elevating mm-hmm. the organizations already doing it on the ground, but nobody was doing the work of making sure that the clinics and that the activists on the ground were getting the support that they needed because they're great. They're doing the work, but they always need, everybody always needs a little PR, right? Everybody always mm-hmm. needs a little platform to talk about how great they are. And for us to be mm. able to gather folks who like our comedy and do that, and then explain to them what's at stake, felt like a really good lane that I could be in that there and, and carve out when there wasn't a lane before. Right. So that part of it is so rewarding. And during COVID, it was really hard because we couldn't get out on the road and do that. So we were doing right. Zoom conversations, and we were and, and and sort of doing it sort of virtually and then starting this big mutual aid program so that people could really take care of folks and then training the folks who were already on the ground, how to use humor to just marginalize and shame all those protesters out there too. So that was part of our <laughs> thing as well. So hoping to get back out on the road in 2022 with the organization, but I myself, I'm going to be out doing some standup gigs starting in late summer. And into the fall as well. So hopefully I'll get to Atlanta. I'm trying yes. to. Because I want to do an Atlanta, Asheville, uh, Raleigh uh, run. And so um, that's kind of what I'm hoping to get for um, hopefully in late fallish or early winter of
0: 2022. So I'll be
2: seeing you. Yes. So excited. Yes.
0: <laughs> I love that so much because I think that is something people struggle with is not necessarily understanding the needs and where they can help and what activism can look like. So I think that is fantastic. As far as, I, f- I feel like this conversation is upsetting because it's like everything with Roe v. Wade, it just is always a fight. It's always a battle, never ends. Are there things that we should be looking out for that are going on right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, one thing that I would say is part of the reason that we got here. Is because we we talk so much about we don't look at things to stop them early in their in their situations, right? Like the the maddening people who are like, both candidates are the same, or blah blah. blah. Elections don't matter. It's like we with Donald Trump, we build up a lower court and a Supreme Court hostile towards abortion rights, queer rights, you know, all the things that actually expand humanity's va- valuing humans. And so, you know, and I think a lot of folks don't realize that when we talk about these abortion laws, the way that they happen is that big, giant, like, organizations that are in Washington, D.C., anti-abortion organizations, they write legislation and then they hand it over to legislatures that are hostile to abortion. They get it through that place. And they specifically target states that have, A, legislatures that will pass it. And B, that are located in a lower court district, so that if it gets challenged, it can go through the lower court and get to the Supreme Court, right? So, the one thing that we desperately need to do is figure out who is in our state senates and our state legislatures and work to get them out so that these laws aren't being proposed to begin with. That's one thing. Because then it's the same people proposing the, um, anti-LGBTQ laws, the the voter suppression laws, gun laws, like it's all the same people, right? There's just a cabal, there's intersectional hatred going on that's really profound. So having said that, you know, if a law gets passed in Kentucky and makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, that you don't live in Kentucky, but all of a sudden your reproductive rights could be affected forever. So what's happening is Mississippi passed a law, a 15-week abortion ban, Roe v. Wade states that abortion is legal in all 50 states up to 24 weeks over the viability of the fetus. Everybody's entitled to that. Abortion is legal in all 50 states right now. A lot of these laws that we've seen recently have challenged access to abortion, but haven't directly challenged that tenet of Roe v. Wade. So we've seen things like you need to be have admitting privileges to a hospital if you're going to perform abortions or 24-hour waiting periods. Those are curbing access, but not overturning Roe v. Wade. This particular Mississippi law, and this is what's really interesting about it, is that normally the Supreme Court will take up a case when the lower courts have been divided or conflicted on whether or not the law is unconstitutional. In this case, two lower courts and conservative lower courts have said, A 15-week ban is unconstitutional because Roe v. Wade says 24 weeks, and this is 15 weeks. Two times. The state of Mississippi said, nope, we're still going to try to go anyway. And they petitioned the Supreme Court directly. And the Supreme Court, in an unprecedented move, took a case that every court agreed was unconstitutional, took it to hear it anyway, which should scare folks. So they're going to hear it in the fall. If the Supreme Court rules that it is constitutional for you to block abortion after 15 weeks, that means Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And there are 11 states that right now have in place something that's called a trigger. And what that means is within 24 hours, 11 states will outright ban abortion in all cases. My fear is that because the Supreme Court has taken on this case, it's a signal to other states who are hostile to abortion, who have not yet put in trigger bans yet to do so. And so we could wind up with a very real possibility that Roe v. Wade will end as we know it. So that's what's happening right now. We will be, which I'm excited about, we'll be going to D.C., we'll be working as hard as we can to support the activists in in Mississippi and the activists around it and raising awareness. Um, Our Twitter feed... abortion front is a really good hub of information. If you're not getting information around the laws and everything, we are really good about doing that and really putting stuff up there and driving you to places where you can read more, the people who are working locally on the ground, so that if you see something and you're upset and you want to help, you're not just making a blanket donation to X large organization. You will be able to tell you in Kentucky, here's the place that you might want to give you know we we oftentimes i love planned parenthood they're incredible but oftentimes there's not planned parenthoods in a state that is being affected and so you want to know who the clinic is who the activists are stuff like that
1: That's amazing yeah speaking of abortion access front twitter just recently i've noticed This whole conversation about the fact that our current administration, who is technically pro-choice, technically, still has a hard time using the word abortion. Uh, I know that that was a big conversation to the point that not only are you know your side as well as other activists are like, hey, abortion, like trying to spell it out, like it's not a bad word. I I think it's such a weird idea, especially today, this day and age, why it's so hard to understand just normalizing that term actually helps part of this fight. Can you talk on that a little
2: bit? Yeah, and I would say it's the single most important thing that we can do to get us on a path of reproductive equality because we for so long have been overrun with the anti-abortion playbook, even to the point where we've allowed themselves to refer to themselves as pro-life when they're the ones who are not considering the life of someone who's pregnant, blowing up abortion clinics, threatening doctors. There's nothing pro-life about denying somebody else life-saving health care. So, you know, we've even seeded that, right? We've seeded this moral ground where we feel like we need to have caveats when we defend it. We have to say, well, nobody's pro-abortion. I actually am. I will actually say that I'm (laughs) pro-abortion because I feel like if somebody needs to make that choice, it is not my decision or it is not my right to judge them for why they're making it. If they've decided they want to do that, I believe them and they're making a moral ethical choice for themselves. And so unless we get to a point where we can say it and we can say it with with dignity and respect and giving it its, its moral claim we can't defend it how can you defend something you can't say why is right. it and and right. and really asking folks the question why is it that you have to say i'm pro choice and not abortion i'm for abortion but only in the in the cases of rape and incest sort of setting up this narrative right. that there's good abortions and there's bad abortions right there's no right. good or bad abortion there's only the abortion that you need and we really right. need to be actively supporting when someone says they need that because i'm unclear of the of how the hypocrites get away with being anti birth control, anti abortion. It's like, what 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 world of abstinence and unicorns are you living in? <laughs> that,
1: right, you know, <laughs> right.
2: sex has happened forever, and since forever, and abortions have happened forever right. since forever. You know, since the history of we've realized how fun sex is, and that it's free. Like, those are giant things in the world. That means it's going to keep happening. It's the most fun you can have, and it also costs nothing. So we should probably make sure people are having it safely and without shame and stigma. That's all. Right, right.
0: Yes, we could talk forever because I'm just like feeling rage at all of these like (laughs) interconnected issues build up in me where it's like, well, you men want to have sex with women and they think it's a right, but they can't have birth control and they can't have abortions. And it's just like... All of this punishment and stigma and weirdness around women controlling their bodies and female sexual pleasure. Yes. And also like, I love how conservatives are all, you know, I want my individual rights, don't tread on me, but but also <laughs> you can tread on her though. Oh, oh treading <laughs> If you on have us a uterus, not time. you.
2: I know. <laughs> and also just the patriarchal setup of the value of women in society. And that mm-hmm. is creating these hypersexualized beings and and giving them worth and then yeah and then when they act on that right when we act on it like right the mm-hmm. sh- patriarchy you know there is nothing better than when you really just like shed you sloth your skin of any interest in the male gaze mm-hmm. it is the most freeing thing in the world and, you know forever I never realized why women in their 50s, started becoming so powerful and why they were marginalized at the same time. And it's Mm -hmm. because they do not give a flying F about what people think, only what they desire and what they want for the greater good. Right, And in turn, that terrifies the white supremacy power structure. So you have to marginalize the older women because they have A ton of power. So when you watch that convergence and you realize that's the plan, it only makes you even more emboldened, (laughs) and that's kind of a good feeling. So for you youngins out there, and that I'm talking to the two of you, understand that you're coming into your power profoundly, and it's really rewarding. Love
0: that. That's awesome. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So could you talk about the Hyde Act? Because I know you all recently did a video explaining it. Yeah. So it's um,
2: for 47 years, ever since, you know, like Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973. And three years later, a congressman from Illinois named Henry Hyde, who was, by the way, well, I'll get to his history in a minute, (laughs) wanted to curb abortion and ban abortion any way he could. And he actually said in a quote, I would like to ban tax dollars from paying for abortions. I'd like to ban all abortions. And since I can't stop rich women from having abortions, I'm going to punish poor women from having abortions. I actually said this out loud, not even saying the quiet part out loud, saying the loud part out loud. So he enacted something called the Hyde Amendment, which is attached to the annual budget bill every year. It has for 47 years. And what it says is, Federal tax dollars will not fund abortion in any way, shape, or form. And that means for people who get their health care from Medicaid, that means folks who work for the government, that means folks who are in the military can't access their own health care for abortions. It's caused an incredible financial rift, as you can imagine, if somebody seeking abortion is either low income, uses Medicaid, or is working for the federal government. So and it's just racist, Mm -hmm. it's just garbage, it's racist, it's classist, it's everything. For 47 years, every president, even the ones you love, have, the Hyde Amendment has ended up in the budget and they have just let it be there. Now, Mm -hmm. oddly, this is the first time this year, Joe Biden, the lukewarm pro-choice, won't say abortion person, left Hyde out of the budget. Wow. So we will see if we can literally end hide, because what that would mean is low-income folks seeking abortion care wouldn't struggle to find the funds to access care. They wouldn't have to wait as long. Oftentimes, people have to cross several state lines. They are trying to raise the funds to get their care, so they end up further in their pregnancy and that abortion costs even more money. It's a reproductive emancipation for black and brown folks and for low income folks. And I just feel like it would be really incredible if we, and there's a great short film Mm -hmm. that just came out and it's called Abortion Helpline. This is Lisa. It's a short film that came out in 2021 early that follows an abortion fund, which there's a volunteer led fund. They're all over the country that folks can call and access to see if they can get funds to help them. And it shows the effects of the Hyde Amendment, explains the Hyde Amendment, and really shows how the Hyde Amendment really affects people. It's a 14-minute short film, but it is devastating. And it's really, really, it's, 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 the, it's a really good explainer to learn about Hyde. So with any hope at all, we've made progress. And through our razor-thin Congress, I don't know if we can get it in the Senate. Right. But it would be really nice to have a budget that did not have reproductive oppression in it. Right. Um, um, and, and you and know, know what I... I... Lord, go to All Above All. They're a really great nonprofit that has been leading the charge on ending the Hyde Amendment. They have been so great. So allaboveall.org. And you can find out how you can fight back and how you can be helpful there. So all
1: ball. Yeah. So honestly, even though I had been a part of social work, so that's been, that was my career before I, I started uh, podcasting as well as having friends who are, we are all very feminist forward. I actually didn't know much about the Hyde Amendment until I came to your first show and the video was beautiful. I was like, oh my God, what is happening? And this is what we're talking about. I never really knew what it was or how it really affected our community and especially, yes, with marginalized communities, how it's really going at. Poor people, on top of the fact that they're not assisting when they do have kids, and oftentimes I would end up working with those kids and not having any funds to help them access medical help or uh, mental health help or any of that stuff. And that's kind of that big conversation of what is this really about? What honestly sound like it's kind of about punishing. People who don't have money, uh, people of color in general, and just are not even able to understand how to access any kind of help. Because let's be honest, even if the Hyde Amendment was to be dismissed, the likelihood of all of the loopholes that each state could find, I can just imagine Georgia, in trying to access those funds will be incredibly difficult. Let's talk about the fact that Kemp is already holding out money that is being offered to us. Because he doesn't want any help from federal government and want to blame the current administration and saying that we didn't get help when there's millions of dollars on the table that he refuses to take. So I'm already upset and angry about what's yeah. happening here. Well, so no, and if I we double clock. down
2: on their anger, part of the <laughs> other thing that's happening right now, it, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know because we're not told. And it's really massively frustrating. Right. But you know, throughout the country, there are religiously set up fake abortion clinics that look like a regular clinic, advertise like a regular clinic. And they're not actually clinics. They're actually places that are designed to lure folks in and convince them not to have abortions and make promises and lie to patients. And they're not run by doctors. There's people who literally wear lab coats who are not doctors, who will lie to you about abortion, lie to you about birth control, lie to you about premarital sex, lie to you about everything just this week we found out that 10 states are diverting TANF funds that's that's welfare for those that don't know welfare funds with stamp funds to fund these fake clinics so taking away the help for low income families and putting that funds to fake clinics that are trying to convince people not to have abortions and have kids while bullshittingly telling them that there's all these government programs that will help them if they decide to have their kid. But those government programs, as they speak, are being cut to fund their lies. So walk with me to this crazy (laughs) circle. And it's just another level of this, of this game of oppression, where if you keep poor people, poor and vulnerable They'll never have agency. They'll never understand they have agency. And again, what survives? The patriarchy and white supremacy.
1: Right, right. (laughs) Absolutely. And it, again, shows why it is a pro-birth movement. End of story. Uh, We actually did have someone who researched the uh, Pregnancy Crisis Center come in and talk to us about what was happening around the country and the level of the fact that they're looking like nurses or professionals, but in actuality, they probably just came in from the church and was told to be a good citizen by making these people have babies and not giving them (laughs) an absolute choice, any kind of choice. But yeah, actually, as a worker for the government in the state of Georgia, I did not know what these pregnancy crisis centers were. And I really thought they were helping give young girls a choice and realizing later, oh my God, I sent them to a really fake, and I feel horrible, like hypocritical state of like, oh, I didn't know that the Pregnancy Crisis Center was this. Now, don't get me wrong for the people who are like, oh, I need car seats. I was like, yeah, go, go there. But half the time they couldn't even access that. They just got pamphlets about how you apply for things, which still is like, what is the point? Yes. Of anything that you're
2: doing? Yeah. And also like folks need to understand just for, for like sort of perspective on it, There are actually around 780 legitimate clinics that provide comprehensive care, including abortion. There is close to 4,000 of these fake clinics. So you're, and, and owning the narrative on Google and that, you know, when you Google looking for an abortion, oftentimes they have rigged the SEO, which is, you know, the algorithm to have them pop up first. And so when you are looking for your abortion and you see an ad that pops up that says pregnant, need help, free, yeah. free tests, choices, options, you're going to go mm-hmm. there. And they don't advertise. And this is the part where where we have done our advocacy. We have created an entire website called exposedfakeclinics.com where you can go learn about the insidious nature of them and how you can fight back, like giving them bad reviews, you know, things like that where you can really be helpful in doing that. But it's um it's really scary to think that folks go there. And the thing that oh what I was gonna say was they hide the fact that that's who they are. And our right. whole issue is if you are an anti-abortion pregnancy center that is trying to get people to keep their pregnancies then say that's who you are, say that's who you are, but you don't, you hide it from people. And the interesting thing is a case went all the way to the Supreme Court challenging the efficacy of these fake clinics. And here's the part that I'd like everybody to just buckle up because I'm about to tell you something that's going to make you real mad. (laughs) The Supreme Court ruled that if you're a fake clinic, and you're not providing actual care, you under the First Amendment get to pretend you're a doctor as long as you're not administering medicine. What? Yes. <laughs> yes. Rule that it's constitutional wow. to set up a kind of look alike place and put on a lab coat and say sort of some vaguely medically sounding things. You're allowed to lie to people under the First Amendment as long as you're not providing the care.
1: Oh, wow. wasn't that kid? Uh, I forgot his name. Who posed for a doctor forever? Shouldn't he been cleared because he didn't technically? Doogie Howser. <laughs> Doogie Howser. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he should be off then. He was federally charged. He kind of came around and pretended like he knew things and then sent a nurse in. Yeah. So I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord.
2: Okay, I'm going to wow. have to have some like...
1: I know. I, I, often, I so often
2: feel when I come on podcasts podcast that I just like, I'm like, you know... On, or just like bring all the doom. <laughs> just bringing, like, I'm just like, oh, that Liz Winston, here she comes. She's just gonna bum me.
1: <laughs> no, but that's the thing is, like, we've talked about this before how we need to start really embracing anger as women and marginalized people because this is what it looks like. It doesn't happen until we get fiery, ready to go. It doesn't happen until passion is inflamed and you're like, oh, this is what this is about. So no, we love it. This is what we live for, putting a fire into someone ass.
2: And I also just want to remind folks that like, and that's what I love about our organization so much is so often when it gets to the point where the news is reporting on it, it's too far down the line for us to do anything about it. So when you right. follow our social media or sign up for our mailing list, we get on it early because right. we're in constant conversation with the activists on the ground and what they're doing. So when they're like, X state is proposing this thing, we're like on top of it immediately so that we can tell folks in right. Ohio, like, shut this garbage down. Like, and here's how you can do it. And so that's mm-hmm. that's the thing that is really, I think, helpful. Since the media right. doesn't help us, we have right. to be the people who are reporting on the media.
1: Right. Absolutely. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> We're talking a lot. Like I said, I've seen a few of your interviews where you kind of talk about the fact that, especially with the last administration in the last year, just everything being dark as <laughs> so dark. I think you said uh, that you needed to be able to shed light and talk about it and bring it about to the world and talk about it to everyone. So we do acknowledge what's going on. Don't just move on with our pretty little lives. And we sort of started maybe seeing some light. There's a few things that helped. You know, Trump is out. I don't even like saying his name. I don't want to hear about him. I just wish I could forget him, but he's not going to be forgotten as Georgia has plainly shown in their recent GOP conference and saying they're going to align behind his ideology still. But, you know, we're in the current... New administration, we're starting to kind of come out of COVID. I have now come out of my house uh, since being fully (laughs) vaccinated. Still not trusting people, though. Still not trusting people. (laughs) But with that, and it's slowly changing, hopefully for the better, with everything else outside of me, us being vaxxed, you know, living that vaxxed life, what else seems like, uh, with everything else that seems like it's going to hell right now, What are you trying to push forward? How are you coming out? Because I I see you're ready. You're ready. Like (laughs) You were ready (laughs) last year when you were like, I have to put on a show. I don't care what everybody else is doing. We're going to do a social distance in the 19 degree weather. We're doing it. So you're ready. (laughs) I see it. What's coming forward?
2: So there's a couple things coming forward that I'm really excited about. And that is getting people back to events, which is really cool. So one thing that I'm really psyched about is on July 19th, the original cast of The Daily Show and (gasps) Madeline Spisberg, who is my co-creator, are getting together to do a conversation around the origins of The Daily Show, the early days, how it came to be. It's really going to be fun because it's the first time we've all gotten together and we're the only folks who really know like those early days, how we came up with the idea, all the pitfalls we had doing this show with no budget and the scrappy correspondents who actually... Created, help, you know, the entire genre. So that's gonna be really fun. And it's a fundraiser for abortion access front So I highly oh, recommend wow. that'll be on Rush Ticks. And that's really cool. And if you sign up for our mailing list, you'll get all the information about that. That's gonna be really fun. We are going out on the road to um confront some bad guys. And that's like a secret yes. that we can't tell you right now, but we can tell you soon. But the bad guys are having their annual convention of anti-abortion bad guys. And we Mm -hmm. have some really cool counter-protesting activism plans around that. That's happening in June. One of the things we wanted to do is not lump all anti-abortion activists into the same brush because they come from different factions. They're inspired by different weird religious beliefs. So we've created a website called Hypocrites Unmasked where we break up and really explain the different factions of the anti-abortion movement, their tactics, sort of where they're located and who their leadership are. One thing that's been really interesting is, and we're continuing to develop, so it kind of falls into your category of what's next, is since we've been on the road for all these years meeting all these local activists, we've also heard from them who their local anti-abortion extremists are. And we Mm -hmm. created a database of everything that everybody has told us in their findings. And we have found cross-connection that some anti-abortion activists are working together across state platforms. And in the course of forming this database, learning some information, we started some fake secret accounts on Facebook. We've infiltrated a little bit watching them. And when the insurrection happened in January we were able to identify 30 people from the anti-abortion movement wow. in the insurrection and report them to the FBI. So that's, that's an me. ongoing secret like thing that we've got going on. But we just also have really cool events coming up too. In the fall, we have an event called Do Re Me Too, which is the third year of us doing it where we get the most righteous performers who sing and reimagine sexist songs just to let I folks know, like we live in a culture that defines women so profoundly, awfully in our pop culture. And often we enable it by singing along and it's really great. And so, you know, we have Sandra Bernhardt. We have Nguyen from the Get Down, Stay Down. We have Amanda Palmer. We've got some really good folks who have signed up already to be on it. We're announcing our uh, lineup in July. So if you want to know more about that show, that's going to be a virtual show too. So you can watch it from anywhere. People are recording their own music videos. It's going to be a riot. Uh. And then we're going to just continue with our outreach for mutual aid. We're going to be exposing fake clinics. So and we have these exposed fake clinics events that are really fun and talking about these fake abortion clinics that we were talking about. There's a whole lot in the pipeline we have going on. I'm going to be touring personally, um, which will be really, really fun. And, you know, I feel like if you want to find out more, the best thing to do is to sign up for our mailing list, the Abortion Access Front. If you go to aafront.org and sign up for our mailing list, You'll get all the updates on the cool stuff. And we don't send out a bunch of just boring emails um, that are like, donate to us. We send you out emails that give you like (laughs) information, stuff to do, ways that you can take action. They're really helpful emails that aren't just about send us money or sign a petition. It's like, get involved, be present, join our community because we really want to build community through our activism.
1: Oh, that's exciting. Actually, right before uh, COVID, I had uh, Caroline and I the one from Unlady, like who introduced me. We're planning to do uh, uh, some volunteer work with abortion clinics, being escorts and such, and then everything shut down. We're like, nope, nope, we're hiding away, (laughs) but uh, I'm gonna have to find, well, I am already subscribed to the newsletter. Duh. So I'm definitely
0: gonna keep up with that. (laughs) Yes. And this has been an absolute pleasure and delight, Liz. Um, I
2: loved it so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me and blabbing
0: with me. Oh, we could talk forever. We could talk forever. You should come back. Yes, yes, Um, and we'll definitely check you out when you're in Atlanta. Any other things you want to plug before we wrap up here? Where can the listeners find you?
2: Um, Listeners can find me. I'm on all the social platforms at Liz Winstead, and I spell my name with two Z's, so you can find me there. And you can find me just out and about. You know, I'm sometimes on my MSNBC. I show my mug around town. But mostly, you know, (laughs) just find me on all the socials and then you'll find me on the other places as well. But I would also say subscribe to our YouTube channel now so that you can get informed when our show launches because you're not going to want to miss this show. It's going to be just a weekly show full of just bad comedy and information and like just like feminist talk and righteousness that you don't want to miss. So sign up, subscribe on YouTube. Abortion Access Front doing it.
0: Yes, yes, definitely do that, listeners. Thanks again for being with us, Liz. Oh, thank you. Such a pleasure. Uh, it's been amazing. Yes. <laughs> and if you would like to find us listeners, you can. You can email us at momstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I'll Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I'll Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.